Well, good morning, church. Ooh. It's great to be back again on a beautiful sunny day, such as today. And I hope and pray that as we go through our final chapter together in the book of Genesis for this time, that we'll be blessed. It, it has been a long journey, hasn't it? We, we can say that. We can agree that it has been a long journey. We started back on the 5th of September, 2021. And as one church, we embarked on this journey to go through the book of Genesis. And here we are, over 40 sermons later, and we're at chapter 25. <laughs> a halfway point in the book, and also a transitional chapter within the book of Genesis. Now, for the last 14 chapters of Genesis, we have been following the story of Abraham. And we've seen the life of Abraham and the calling that God had on his life. We've been with Abraham through the highs of his life, such as God providing him and Sarah, Isaac, the promised son. And we've been with him through the lows as well, when Abraham didn't trust God, at least didn't trust God fully for the fulfillment of his promises, and he tried to help God out with his own plans. Now today's passage, of course, is our final sermon in Genesis, and during this session, sorry, during this session, we're going to, it's going to bring us to the inevitable end that we will all sadly face as we live on a life of, of, uh, of sinful earth. We come to chapter, chapter 25, to the death of Abraham, and a summing up of his, of his final years. It's my prayer that as we spend time today looking at the death of Abraham, we'll take comfort knowing that God has a plan and a purpose for all things, and that he can even use the death of a patriarch to bring about his will for the good of his people. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank and praise you for all that you are and all that you do. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word and the opportunity to meditate and reflect on it and to see clearly your hand in, in our lives. We ask and pray, Lord, that you'll be with me now, that you'll give me the words to say. Please, Lord, hide me, Lord, and lift up Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen. So, verse 1 and 2. Thank you, Grace, for reading <laughs> that incredible list of names. Thank you so much for reading it so, so beautifully. Verse 1 and 2. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shur. Now, back in chapter 23, we read about the death of Sarah. She was 127 years old when she died thus making Abraham around 137 years at that time. In total, Abraham lived a further 38 years after Sarah's death, which took him to the ripe old age of 175. Now, at some point, and we don't know exactly when, Abraham took another wife by the name of Keturah. Now, very little is known about Keturah, She's only mentioned here in Genesis and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32. And in both instances, she is referred to as a concubine, 
Notice in the first part she's referred to as a wife, but later on it talks about her as being a concubine, which has led some scholars to assume that Keturah became Abraham's concubine while Sarah was still alive. But there is no evidence for that. And it seems to me that this is at odds with the character that Abraham was developing towards the latter portion of his life. My own personal view is that he started a relationship with Keturah after Sarah died, but we will never know for certain. One thing, though, that I do find interesting about Keturah is that in the original language, her name means spice. Yes, folks, Abraham married a spice girl. <laughs> Sorry, David Beckham, if you're listening at any point. Abraham married a Spice Girl a few millennia before you did. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Spice Girls' hit singles, and those of you who are not, please forgive me for what is about to happen. It seemed that in his latter years, Abraham didn't want to be alone. Perhaps Keturah asked him, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Abraham wanted to viva forever with a wife that would spice up your life. He married Keturah, thus the two became one. Perhaps around him, people around him were surprised by his actions and thought something kind of funny and exclaimed, Abraham, who do you think you are? Abraham would have for sure made the headlines with Keturah because he let love lead the way. But Keturah became more than just a wife. She became a mama who bore six children to Abraham. <laughs> bless you, bless you, you're too generous. Now in all seriousness, Abraham's relationship with Keturah was a means for God to fulfill his promise to provide through him many nations, that Abraham would be the father of many nations. Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 to 7 tells us, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. As an example of this fulfillment with Abraham's children from Keturah is, is Midian. He's the father, of course, of the Midianites. And we know that Moses, the author of Genesis, spent time with the Midianites when he fled Egypt, and he married Jethro, the priest of Midian's daughter. The Midianites were, of course, a nation that the children of Israel knew very well. Moses wrote the book of Genesis in the first instance for the children of Israel to have a history and understanding of God. Here Moses uses this detail in the life of Abraham to remind the children of Israel of the promises of God and that he is faithful in all things. The list of Abraham's sons through Keturah, several of whom grew into nations that we know today, shows a fulfillment of God's promise. Even though we may not recognize most of the other names, the fact is that the children of Israel did. 
And the existence of these nations was a powerful demonstration to Israel that God promises and he fulfills. Verse 5 and 6. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Notice here the contrast that further evidences, uh, evidenced by the inclusion of Keturah's sons in this verse here. Moses is making a point that to the original readers of Genesis that their ancestor Isaac was favored of God and that his descendants were included in this blessing. Isaac was the child of promise. The many other sons that Abraham had were the sons of flesh. And although still descendants of Abraham, they were not included in the blessing that belonged to Isaac alone. Notice that only Isaac remained in the land of Canaan, as the rest of the sons were sent to live away from there. The land was to be for Isaac alone and his descendants as promised by God. Genesis chapter 17, verse 21, God told Abraham that he would establish his covenant with Isaac. It was to Isaac's descendants that God would therefore give the land of Canaan. And as Genesis 22:18 tells us, it was through Isaac's seed that all nations of the earth would be blessed in the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. From this point on in Genesis, the narrative of the book begins to focus upon Isaac and his descendants. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament unfolds the story of the nation of Israel who would directly come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Isaac's descendants, Moses' first readers of Genesis needed to see their part in God's chosen means of fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And they needed to obey God in taking possession of the promised land at that time. Verses 7 to 11. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron and the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beeloliorai. Now notice that Moses shares three very significant details about the end of Moses' life. First, he lived to a good old age. Second, he was an old man. And third, he was full of years. Now, I know that here we use the ESV, but I really love how the New American Standard Bible puts these three details. It says that Abraham died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life satisfied with life. The implication here in this verse is that Abraham couldn't ask for anything more from life that God had not already given to him. Undeniably, Abraham had had a full 
and packed life in those 175 years. But more than that, though, through it all, even in the worst moments, he remained a man who trusted God. And that was the source of his satisfaction. He never lost his love for the Lord, who called him out of Ur 100 years earlier. He stayed faithful to God and found his delight in him. Abraham was satisfied with life. When he died, he found, a hundred years before, he found the ultimate source of delight. The ultimate source of delight in any person's life is a trusting relationship with God. How about us? Are we satisfied with life? Or are we like a rolling stone with a hunger for more that cannot be satisfied no matter what we do to fulfill it? Abraham found over a lifetime that the ultimate joy and satisfaction in life could only come from God. God was his satisfaction. The writer Oswald Chambers said, the man or woman who does not know God demands an infinite satisfaction from other human beings which they cannot give. And in the case of the man, he becomes tyrannical and cruel. It springs from this one thing. The human heart must have satisfaction, but there is only one being who can satisfy the last abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Only God can bless us with a life of satisfaction, and it only comes from a life in submission to him and his will. Abraham didn't find his satisfaction in his wealth and possessions. He was satisfied because he knew the one who had given him all that he had. He was satisfied because he knew the giver of the gifts rather than the gifts themselves. The more I compare what the world offers with its phony satisfaction substitutes, the more I realize that the only way that one can truly die full and satisfied with life is if we have lived only to further God's purposes. If we live for ourselves, Jesus warns us that we will be left perpetually empty. But if we live for Jesus Christ and the gospel's sake, we will find true life. In Mark chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus tells us, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Verse 8 of our passage tells us that Abraham was gathered to his people. Who were Abraham's people? Well, unlike his nephew Lot, who identified with the people of Sodom before God rescued him from there, Abraham's people were not the pagan ancestry he left behind in Ur. He was not gathered or buried with them, but rather in the cave in Hebron. Sarah was the only body in that family tomb. His body would lay beside that of his beloved wife in the tomb. Now this phrase, gathered to his people, is not just about when Abraham died. I believe it's used for, well, it's also used for Ishmael, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, or Aaron, David, and it's also used elsewhere in the New Testament for a whole generation that served God. So what could it mean? Does it have any further meaning? Well, for me, the phrase, his people, 
is a reference to people of faith, his ancestors, Adam, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Shem, among many others who served the Lord and followed him. I believe that being gathered to his people is more than just a euphemism for death and burial. This, I believe, is an indication that there is life beyond the grave, that we have a hope that one day too, we will be gathered to these people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after we die. We will have this hope that we'll be gathered together with all the faithful men and women of God who live in his presence. Jesus himself told us in Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 to 11, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What a blessed hope that is for us all. What a blessed hope. Something leapt out at me while I was reflecting on this passage. Hidden in between all of the difficult names of descendants was a small detail in verse 9, which if you read it too fast, we may miss the significance. Verse 9 tells us that it was Isaac and his older brother Ishmael that buried Abraham. Now, the last time the Bible records them being together was many years before, on the day of celebrating Isaac's weaning. On that day, we remember that Sarah had observed Ishmael's attitude and behavior towards Isaac, and in an effort to protect her son, she pleaded with Abraham, insisted rather, to expel Hagar and Ishmael from their home. We read that, of course, in Genesis 21, verse 9. Now, we know that very early, the very next morning, Abraham sent Hagar and Ishmael on their way. And Genesis does not tell us if the brothers had any further contact afterwards until Abraham's death when they were buried, when they buried him together. The Bible doesn't provide us with the information about the relationship between the two brothers during the intervening years. Did Isaac know about Ishmael's dismissal by their father from the family home and abandonment in the wilderness? Sorry, did, did Isaac know that? Did Ishmael know about Isaac's near-death experience at the hand of their father during the testing that God gave him? We'll never know for certain, but what we can be sure of is that death in a family will often change everything for those left behind. According to Monica McGoldrick, who is a family systems theory therapist and educator, death and other major loss pose the most painful adaptional challenge for a family as a system and for each surviving member. Its impact reverberates through all the relationships in a family. You see, when a change takes place in a family through an addition, such as marriage, uh, a birth or adoption, or a subtraction through divorce or death, it opens up the possibility for both positive and negative change. McGoldrick writes, loss can strengthen survivors, bring them closer together, inspire their creativity, and bring out their strengths. Conversely, 
it can also leave behind a destructive legacy of dysfunctional coping patterns. Perhaps Isaac and Ishmael at first greeted their reunion at their father's death with a preemptive dread. But what we find is that both of them were able to put aside any differences that they had about the past and reconcile themselves in order to bury their father. Back in August of 2011, my father died very unexpectedly. It was the bank holiday weekend of that year. And like Abraham, my father had had a full but complicated life of his own doing. And when the time came, both my half-sister and I buried him, and I was asked to provide a eulogy for the service. My father and I were sadly not very close. He made choices when I was a child that negatively impacted both myself and my sister, and I, and perhaps we, are still impacted by them to some extent today. Neither my sister or I had very positive experiences of our father growing up because he was always absent from both of us. But the funeral was attended by literally hundreds of people who had nothing but praise and adoration for our father. He was very active within his community. And everyone who we would meet would want to share some way in which our father had blessed them my sister and I began to see another side to the man who had been distant and absent for so much of our lives growing up. So, as much as my... As much as both my sister and I wanted to tell them how wrong they were, and that he wasn't a great father, God softened our hearts, and we were able to see a side of him that we never knew. Here were literally hundreds of people who thought the world of him, and their experience was true. In my eulogy, which I labored over in preparation, I, I found myself in a place of reconciliation with my father. I felt God inviting me to look beyond the hurt look beyond the hurt that I had felt for so long and see the wider picture, to see the good that his life had shared with others and how blessed they had been by him. Over the years, I knew that my father and I had many regrets, many regrets about how things unfolded in our past, but ultimately, God used this experience to bring about a positive change in me. So when I read this passage that Isaac and Ishmael buried their father together, I see two men who perhaps were at odds with each other finding peace with the past and building something new. They both let go of the hurt and perhaps saw for the very first time what they truly were. Brothers united by a father who they had now lost. The past was now a distant country and they could choose to move forward and build something new. How about us? Are we allowing the hurt and the wrongs of the past to hold us captive, or are we moving forward in Christ 
and forgiving the hurts of the past so we can be free to experience the liberation that Jesus, Jesus wants us to have. Sometimes as humans, we find it incredibly hard to forgive others. But God's word encourages us to demonstrate to others the same grace that our Heavenly Father has given. When asked by his disciples how to pray, Jesus gave them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. Both Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11 record them. And we're challenged by what Jesus said. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. I grew up with the King James Version, and it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us, Lord, as we forgive. I tell my students at school that the Lord's Prayer is a dangerous prayer for someone to recite if they are unwilling to forgive. When we pray it, we're actually asking God to forgive us in exactly the same way, to the same extent that we forgive others. If I can't forgive my brother or sister in Christ or anyone else who's wronged me, how can I expect God to forgive me if I'm unwilling to forgive others? Please make a note of these following three verses and meditate on them. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 tells us, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Colossians chapter 3, 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Likewise, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32 tells us, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Christ wants his bride, the church, to live a life of love and forgiveness for one another. God wants us to forgive others because we have be, been forgiven much by him. Our application today is going to be very different than usual, and I prayed long and hard about this. In a moment, we're going to have a time of quiet prayerful reflection with each of us privately seeking God. Let's ask God in prayer how he wants us to individually respond to this message today. Is God asking us to forgive a family member? Is he asking us to forgive a brother or sister in Christ? Is there an action that we need to take to have closure on a particular memory or event from the past? Maybe God has put it in your heart today to speak to that person right here and right now. Don't delay. If God is calling you to whatever action, don't delay. Let's just spend some time in his presence, opening our hearts to God's spirit. And at the end of this time of reflection, I'll pray to conclude. Let's bow our heads.